I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast supported by Pragati, a flagship media initiative of the Takshashila Institution. We're a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like to bring a fresh perspective to Indian affairs and an Indian perspective to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello and welcome to yet another episode of All Things Policy, where we discuss policy issues of relevance as well as day-to-day issues of relevance. My name is Priya Lencia de Almeida, and uh, I am a research analyst at the Takshashila Institution. And I have with me today Rutharaj, who is my colleague. Hi, and welcome to the podcast, Rutharaj. Nice to have you here. Hi. So now, before we dive into today's episode, I have few announcements slash you know things to say. So admissions are now open for our twelve-week graduate certificate programs in public policy, defense, and foreign affairs, and technology and policy. And the last date of applications on the thirtieth of April, twenty twenty-two, and the program starts on seventh of May, twenty twenty-two. And for more details, you can always log on to school.takshashila.org.in and get more information on what these programs are and how you can apply and all sorts of things. Now, so let's dive into our episodes. Like we know currently that a war is raging on the Ukraine, and as the war uh, continues to rage on, uh, Ukraine and Russia have agreed on nine humanitarian corridors. And these corridors are in Ukraine: Mariupol, Sumy, Trostyanets, Lebedin, Konotov, the settlements of uh, Krasnopilia and uh, Velika Piasarevka. Um, the war-torn Ukraine also plans to deliver humanitarian aid to Balakleya and Izium in Kharkiv Oblast. And all of these facts were reported by the Kiev Independent. So, Rutraj, before I ask uh, you a question, is there something you want to add on to this based on what is currently happening? Yeah, I mean, we don't actively work in this area, but this term was uh, had become sort of popular—not popular, but was coming in the news frequently. So, we thought we should do a quick dive for our curiosity as well as for our listeners' curiosity. So, we are not experts on this; we are just collating things that we came across. Yeah. And because anyway, all things policy started as a in-house discussion that then we decided to record and put it out. I mean, right. this is going back to that format right. um, that we are talking about something that is in the news, but also has certain policy implications and uh, we were curious about it. Yeah. So that's why today's topic. Yeah. Thanks for actually adding on to that. And uh, so, yeah, like, you know, let me get straight to the point. So we we have used the word humanitarian corridors for since we started this podcast, right? Now, like, can you tell us more about what exactly does this theme mean? Like, what is the definition? What exactly does it entail when we say the word humanitarian corridors? Right now, you know, to stick to a very bookish definition, it it means that in a given geographical area and in a, in a time period where there is. In a broader context where military operations are taking place, uh, a area in time and space where there is no war happening, and yeah. the immediate aim of this these corridors is primarily for the civilian population to be evacuated from a region 
uh, where war is imminent or has been happening for a while and there are injured people or civilians are trapped, things like that. It can also be, yeah, it doesn't have to be this way. This is a very bookish sort of definition. Right. It can also be to, you know, uh, just provide supplies to a citizenry which is under siege or which is trapped or even allow for, you know, neutral observers like the UN or two Red Cross to just come inside the area to mm-hmm. do their humanitarian job. But broadly, it is it is a path. It can be a, an air path. So let's say you want to just fly in uh, helicopters or planes into a particular airspace and land in a particular city. That right. can also be a corridor. It yeah. can be an on-ground corridor where you're actually allowing a convoy of trucks and jeeps or whatever. Or it can be even a, it's rare for a naval corridor, uh, but you can also have that. Right. Where if let's say a port is blocked, you can have certain ships coming up with mm-hmm. supplies. So yeah, to be a very uh, bookish about it, it's one yeah. form of, you know, temporary pause in conflict. So like, right. let's say you have the armistice or the ceasefire at a very higher level and far more longer in terms of time. But with this, United Corridor is comparatively for a shorter duration because nobody is saying that the war has ended. Everyone agrees the war is going, will go on. But during a few days or a few hours within a particular single day, you are allowing generally non-combatants to this area. So that's uh, like a definition of mandatory yeah. corridor. And the thing is, I mean, you, we have seen these sort of arrangements earlier. What we right now have is the UN mediated with, you know, both parties agreeing. Right. This is a sort of a modern, I would say, post-Cold War uh, sort of very yeah, formalized yeah. arrangement. But yeah. throughout human history, wars have been common Unfortunately, famines have been common, seizures have been common. And these humanitarian corridors in various forms are nothing new, I would say, to human history. Right. Uh, Actually, yeah, thanks for giving like that proper definition of what exactly like a humanitarian corridor is, right? So from what I understand, it is for the passage of like civilians from a war zone to a relatively peaceful zone or to a different country and all of that. Now, the idea behind it or the whole... The theory behind it is, you know, out there. Like we understand now what it exactly means. But like, how do you set it up? Like you said, right? Because now it is a small passage or like an area that that is agreed upon that nothing is going to happen and it's going to be peaceful and people can leave the place and all of that. But what is the logistics behind, you know, setting up a humanitarian corridor? Also, because you did mention that it's not something new, you know, it's something that has wars have been waged on since like time immemorial. So how would that happen in the past? And how is it a little different now with the technology and everything in place? Right, right. So we can start with the recent examples and go back for this conversation. So currently what happens is generally UN or Red Cross, such neutral parties are at the center of these. So both, let's say it's a it's a war with just two parties. Then both parties approach the UN and then the UN sort of organizes these. And there is, of course, there are mechanisms, there are protocols which are part of the UN, which are behind this. For example, so humanitarian corridors generally come under something called as relief corridors that the UN manages. And right. this was done in resolution 4500 in 1990s. And this particular resolution, it's sort of tailor-made for the current humanitarian corridors that we are seeing right now in Ukraine. But they have their origins in the, you know, Geneva Convention of 1949 and the additional protocols at 77. So these 
as you know, the conventions are related to war and the treatment of people who are either prisoner of war, citizens, or even the soldiers of uh, your opposition. So this stems from that, that right. the humanitarian, the international, uh, how should I put it, um, these corridors are a sort of refinement of that yeah. tailored towards, mostly towards non-combatants and citizens, oh, okay. yeah. civilians, basically. Yeah. And another aspect of humanitarian corridors where just that the transit is focused on, that you right. allow people to pass. And yeah. that was sort of cemented in, I would say, in 1992. And this happened at international, you know, international humanitarian meeting at uh, San Ermo in Italy in 1992. And that's how the protocols, the paperwork behind it has sort of progressed. So what happens currently, as I said, it's both parties would approach you and people would actually, both the warring parties would be actually, like not literally sitting across each other, but would yes. be communicating and agreeing upon the duration, the areas, also mm -hmm. the number of people that they, they will be allowed to leave. I mean, right. we don't want a mad rush. Uh, yeah. So all these things, very mundane uh, things that you think of in the context of war. Uh, I mean, I mean, it's very bizarre. You are allowing only, you know, 100,000 people to leave yeah. only for three hours. These sound very uh, depressing, but yeah. on the ground, this is what actually is negotiated by the two it's parties. exactly that, yeah. Yeah. And we can't, and like, you know, when we're talking about these things, I think we need to be very aware of what the ground realities are because it's very easy to say, Ki, okay, fine, you know what, like, this seems, this is such a sad thing that is happening and we have to acknowledge it. But at the same time, like, this is a reality for a lot of people. And acknowledging that part also is extremely important. Now, like, moving on with the same point, right? Another thing I wanted to ask you was like, so when we talk about, humanitarian corridors are these like meant for people only who are planning to leave a country now because they want to become a refugee in a different country but not everyone wants to leave a country during a war right now for example in a large country in a large country in terms of area or something there might be certain parts of the country that are not under war and are relatively peaceful and people are like okay fine you know what they are hoping for things to get better and you know plan hoping to like you know that the situation of war just goes away and they can resume back to slowly get back to their normal lives and stuff like that. So my question was exactly that as to, is the entire um, idea or the entire thing of humanitarian corridors only specific for civilians leaving the country or uh, is there something else to it? Yeah. So now let's say we can take the case of Ukraine. I mean, why we are coming across several humanitarian corridors is because it's the largest country in Europe. I mean, the country that completely is located in Europe, it's the largest yeah. and that it is seeing uh, aggression from nearly all sides. And that's why you have these multiple, almost nine yeah. corridors and two other sort of lesser corridors. But if you see, not all corridors are for people to leave the country. And it's also, um, let's say we can take a few names, like the, let's say the corridor going away from Kiev, it's actually into Belarus. Now, Belarus is sort of an ally of Russia. So it is the people are actually going in a country which is related to the aggressor, which is sympathetic to the aggressor. Yeah. While let's say the the Kharkiv and the Sumi areas, the, the humanitarian corridors emanating from there, uh, they actually go into Russia. Mm -hmm. So citizens, Ukrainians are actually going into Russia proper. Right. While there are also certain internal corridors like 
the region of Volgovka, the corridor emanating from that, it doesn't actually exit. It actually takes citizens more inside in the more central region of Ukraine. Right. Also, the Mariupol corridor, it has two, one to go north and one again to go into the central region of Ukraine. Okay. So okay. it's not just for people to leave the entire country, but just to exit a particular area, which is currently under intense, you know, right. enemy activity or yeah. is under siege or the, the siege was so long uh, that the resources were depleted and the citizens would have died if they stayed longer. Right, Something right. like what happened in the siege of Sarajevo in the Yugoslavian okay. civil war. It almost lasted for three years. And throughout this three year long siege, people were allowed to leave in neighboring areas, which was still mm-hmm. under war. So right. it's not just solely for, you know, refugees to enter POW or cross the border. It can be any area, basically. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Wow. That's actually quite interesting because when I heard the term humanitarian corridors, my obvious assumption was that it is for people to leave one country to the other country. And I I wasn't aware that it could be within like in the same country as well from like a very specific war-torn region to a relatively like a peaceful nation. Yeah, because, you know, war is, I mean, I mean, one, the classical war is, you know, two countries fighting each other across yeah. international lines. But there's also civil wars, there are also insurgencies. So for example, in the Ethiopian civil war, basically it was government versus rebels. Mm -hmm. There, the Tigray region where the action was happening, the corridor was for countries' own people to exit the rebel-held areas into other parts of Ethiopia. So yeah, so they were not crossing international borders or even uh, in the Syrian uh, civil war, Mm -hmm. uh, which was very complicated because there were so many actors, the rebels, the government forces, Russia, American-backed forces. So in that, uh, in the other homes in Hamas region, I mean, there were humanitarian corridors for people to enter a particular province. And it was sad that in the end, that particular province was then attacked because it, it sort of acted to funnel all the Right. Citizens who were in support of the rebels in a particular province and then the province yeah. was attacked later. So, I mean, on paper, it seems a very defined thing. But yeah, yeah, yeah. during war, these corridors can be even exploited. I mean, right. yeah, uh, there are limitations. We'll probably right. talk about it slightly later. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now, before we move on now, let's take a short break and we will be right back. Hello and welcome back to our podcast where we were discussing about humanitarian corridors. And so continuing with our previous conversation, Rutraj, we were discussing exactly what humanitarian corridors are, how are they set up and like, you know, what is it meant for all of those things. Now, continuing with it, like, I think in the introduction itself that we had said that humanitarian corridors has existed since several years, like, you know, throughout like the times of war. Right now, can you give us certain examples to show that it has happened? And this is not something new, specifically in the case of like Ukraine and Russia. Yes. So the current form of humanitarian corridors with UN being the mediator, that's they have shaped in the early 90s after the Cold War. But throughout human history, as we discussed, I mean, you see certain instances. And it's not the case that these corridors have always been used in the true spirit. I mean, the Mong- let's say, let's go back as far as the Mongols. They have used these corridors in a manner that we think of these as well as as a form of deception to actually right. defeat the enemy. 
So yeah. in particular case, uh, I think these are the sieges of the Khwarezmian Empire and also Baghdad, the areas around Baghdad then. Uh, these guys, when they were capturing multiple cities, laying siege to cities, they would guarantee safe passage. That mm-hmm. if the city doesn't resist the, their attempts, it doesn't put up defenses, it doesn't uh, allow with you know, garrison. If the garrison lays down its arm without a single shot being fired, then the entire population of the city would be spared and then they would be allowed to, the population would be allowed to go to a neighboring province or come out right. safely from one city to another city. So there are many instances where the Mongols actually were true to the word. But then at the same time, there have been instances, this is I think so again in, during the Khorizmian occupation of Mongols, that the Mongols couldn't defeat a particularly well-entrenched enemy. So after a series, after an entire day of fighting, they agreed for the enemy to let the enemy pass through a particular road uh, away away from the battlefield. Uh, And so the the enemy thought that the Mongols would be true to their word. So the the enemies actually laid down their weapons. They came out of their trenches and exited their very well-defended position. But as soon as they went a few miles, the Mongols actually attacked them during the pursuit. And that's how they defeated uh, mm-hmm. the enemy. So you have the same, you know, same empire, same people using it yeah. in a positive okay. as well as negative. So this, I mean, there are certain instances like these throughout the history. But let's say coming to, you know, modern history, arguably you can say the what happened in 1938 in Germany, where Jewish children were allowed to sort of, you know, leave Germany, the boundaries of Germany. And most of these children went to UK. And this is known as the kinder transport. Kinder is children in Germany. So this can be thought of as a humanitarian passage where non-combatant children were allowed. Though 1938, war hadn't actually broken out in Europe actively. Mm -hmm. But these were persecuted people and they were sort of, you know, allowed. To go out. Also, another instance in 1949, so this is after the Second World War ends, Berlin was blockaded. The city of Berlin, it was, though the city of Berlin itself was uh, divided into four quadrants, ruled each by USSR, America, France, and UK. The entire city lied in the area of Germany controlled by Russia. So the entire, the other half of the city was sort of blocked by Russia. So America actually organized multiple air sorties to supply city from the American-held parts of Germany or Europe or France. So, and this is also thought right. of a humanitarian corridor, but this was unilateral in the sense there was no agreement between USSR and USA. So the, all the okay. flights were taking a place without actual confirmation that USSR won't shoot down those aircrafts. This was sort of a one-sided humanitarian corridor. But here again, a year, the people were not evacuated, but supplies were brought in. So this is a slightly different uh, example. But what you see in what happened in Yugoslavia and from Yugoslavian civil war and wars later on is very close to the modern concept uh, of humanitarian civil war. The one of the most successful ones, not successful, but one of the very large corridors would be during the siege of, you know, the city of Sarajevo. This siege lasted for three years mm-hmm. and people were allowed to go at various instances. Also in, you know, Libya, in Ethiopia, as we said, in, also in Syria, in this is the recent past, corridors have been, you know, organized, but these are just one or two because, you know, the extent of war, there wasn't that much. 
and these were relatively shorter and less messy wars. I'm using these words, I know, but I'm comparing it to the complexities of Yugoslavian civil war. Right. So yeah, yeah. You, you, we have seen United in Corridors in the recent past, as well as in our ancient history. Thanks so much, Ruturaj, for actually taking us through the whole history part of like the humanitarian corridors, like giving examples of the recent past and also like way uh, about like earlier past and stuff like that. That actually helps us get like a better idea about like how humanitarian corridors have like, you know, moved from the beginning and how they have evolved with times. But one thing I think with when we were talking about something that constantly came up was the fact that a lot of these, the humanitarian corridors in general is based on trust, right? It is based on absolute trust and the belief that the person who is like sort of waging a war against you is going to let your civilians move to a safer zone. So what other limitations are there when it comes to like the humanitarian corridors? Can you let us know about it? Uh, so yeah, as you said rightly, Priya, these corridors are um, based on trust. Trust is the mainstay of this. And if there is the slightest bit of miscommunication between the parties involved, or if there is a delay between miscommunication, because, um, I mean, these corridors might be set up at a higher level, while the troops on the ground who are actually in that area might not get the message. And you might have civilians starting to come out of their areas and the troops might not know what is happening. So there are chances, there are actually more chances of a corridor failing than it being successful. And that has happened. In my Paul, it happened uh, where, where the Russian forces said that civilians attacked them or in the uh, Kherson area, uh, the corridor, where it, in a matter of 20, 30 minutes, I mean, they, they, it entirely failed because there was immense miscommunication. So that was always the risk and limitation. Also, there might be cases where, you know, the supplies, fuel supplies or ammunition can be uh, fueled, smuggled in sort of for the forces which are under siege. So technically, right. no war, and anything towards the war efforts is supposed to be allowed in. But under this confusion, under this a temporary ceasefire of sorts, um, smugglers can come in. Also, I mean, the, the, these times can be used by forces to figure out the condition and you can gather intelligence on the state of the other forces. So there are very, there are, there are a lot of limitations in these corridors. So it's, I mean, to define a successful corridor to even, or even to think of a successful corridor, uh, it's very fuzzy. It's, it's very, uh, it's not very well defined, but they are part and parcel of uh, war efforts and to okay. help the citizenry escape and give them a temporary passage, a temporary safety. This is what we can do in most instances. Yeah. Thank you so much, Rutaraj, for letting us know. And actually, like what you said, this is like the temporary thing that, uh, you know, like uh, as much as with time, I'm pretty sure like things will get, will evolve and like will come up with much better ways of dealing with it. And with the advent of social media, a lot of these communication has moved to Twitter and, and stuff like that. And communication has become more easier and stuff like that, right? And with time, things will continue to improve. But thank you so much for uh, taking us through what exactly these humanitarian corridors are because this one as such was a topic that even I wasn't aware of and like, you know, talking to you and uh, listening to you tell all these things 
actually did give me a lot of information on what these are and uh, everything about it. So thank you so much for joining me in today's episode. And I hope our listeners also had a lot of fun. Thank you. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app, ivmpodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashilainst or our website takshashila.org.in.